Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. to the Explaining History podcast. And this is the first of several podcasts that I'm going to do on the state of Great Britain on the eve of the Second World War. So the first of these podcasts is really going to be a kind of an, an overview of uh, Britain's uh, economy and society uh, uh, and during the mid-1930s. And we're going to start from um, the year... Uh, 1936, uh, when uh, Edward VIII abdicated and uh, George VI uh, took the throne uh, to be crowned uh, the following year in 1937. And at the moment we're going to be looking at Britain's War by Daniel Todman, which is a, a truly amazing social history, British social history, of the Second World War, and he begins by contextualising Britain's um, experience during the Second World War with the pre-war decades, um, and makes the clear point that uh, Britain's experience of the Great Depression had transformed British society and politics in a way uh, that would have been in some ways unrecognisable to the um, uh, decade of the 1920s. Now, for those of you uh, who've heard me talk before about Adam Tooze's amazing book, uh, The Deluge, um, The Deluge begins in the year 1916, because 1916 is the year uh, when the uh, American economy eclipsed that of Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain, as a result of the war, um, became a detonation um, instead of being the world's creditor. It borrowed instead of lended. Um, and it was the uh, desperate need for uh, finance and material that saw uh, America surge ahead and um, also the disruption to uh, Britain's economy, Britain's world trade and markets uh, led to... Um, uh, America seizing opportunities uh, during um, the war. Now, the thing about that year of 1916 is that it is the beginnings 
of what would later be acknowledged under Harold Macmillan um, as relative economic decline. Not absolute, the British economy doesn't collapse and the British economy doesn't shrink to being uh, next to nothing. Um, it's still, throughout the rest of the 20th century, one of the uh, kind of uh, top uh, five uh, by the 1960s and top uh, eight by the 1970s uh, global economies. So uh, gradually uh, we see a decline in position from uh, the, uh, the dominant economy uh, of the world that Britain um, was for much of the 19th century. Um, but by 1936, um, the, the British economy is still, even with uh, the Great Depression to contend with, still a, uh, a kind of a powerful uh, and wealthy uh, state. So Daniel Todman writes, when George VI came to the throne, the UK was still distinguished internationally by its industrial and trading wealth. Very few Britons worked the land. Instead, they lived around huge cities, most of them in seven great conurbations, London, Glasgow, Manchester, Leeds, Birmingham, Liverpool and Sheffield, where they worked in factories, offices and shops. In the rest of the world, only Belgium was as heavily urbanised as the UK. When it came to sucking in food and raw material imports from abroad and churning out manufactured goods for exports, Britain still led the world. So uh, there is a, an interesting comparison with the United States in 1936 um, that Britain is more urbanised, more industrialised per uh, head of population um, than America. And it's really the experience of the Second World War that once again sends America to this huge uh, economic uh, and industrial transformation to become the leading uh, technological, uh, military, scientific and manufacturing power uh, in the world. The British had long since grown in terms of population far greater than could be sustained by British agriculture alone and this was certainly the case uh, a century beforehand um, and the British were also highly reliant on uh, the globalisation of their food supply, wheat from Canada um, and food um, from uh, across the British Empire, um, which was uh, a strength of the British economy, but also, during wartime, a significant weakness. And whilst the kind of epicentre of global finance was shifting from London to New York, um, the uh, British insuring houses and banks uh, still led the way. Um, the, uh, as Daniel Todman writes, the UK also remained central to the machinery of international commerce, with British banks and insurance houses holding colossal overseas assets and the British registered merchant fleet dwarfing any other. He adds, the period between the wars saw a rapid expansion of new forms of manufacturing driven on by growing domestic consumption including motor cars, household electrical goods, man-made cloth and processed foods. Britain was beginning to change um, and transition away from heavy to light industry. The uh, British economy had been based on four main staples, steel, coal, cotton and shipbuilding. 
for much of the 19th century, but not only was Britain beginning to lose its comparative advantage in these industries in the early 20th century due to a lack of uh, poor management and underinvestment, but also these industries, uh, particularly coal mining and shipbuilding, were beginning to develop around the world in countries which were um, able to produce um, the, the kinds of, these kinds of commodities far, far cheaper. There is a, a, a very interesting story in Empire of Cotton by Sven Beckett uh, about the development of a cotton industry in China during the 1930s under the nationalist leadership of Chiang Kai-shek and um, how the Chinese had ambitions to return cotton spinning back to China, where uh, much of it uh, originated centuries beforehand, and used that as one of their stable industries to dominate the economy of Southeast Asia, thus muscling the British out almost. Um, so there, there's a kind of a clue as to uh, how um, heavy industries were eventually kind of weaponized against the, uh, the British economy. Um, and instead of um, remaining static, the British economy began to transition into uh, lighter manufacturing, as it says here, electrical goods and motor cars and that kind of thing. Why? Because there were new demographics within Britain and new middle classes uh, that had the kind of disposable income that would uh, make these industries viable. These industries these became good export industries uh, and also um, as living standards gradually improved um, and had things like houses were gradually electrified and there was a uh, house building um, uh, house building sort of initiative a wave of house building projects in the second half of the 1930s the development of new towns in uh, Britain and garden cities um, and these featured mainly electrified houses and the electrified houses are great places to put electrical consumer goods in and so that kind of infrastructure building created new markets for new kinds of products. The um, popular engagement with science and technology and engineering uh, was significant during the 1930s and the scientific expert became a far more central figure in um, a British life. Uh, the profusion of uh, books such as um, the Victor Galanx's uh, Left uh, Book Club or uh, Alan Lane's Penguin series, uh, which uh, explained scientific or philosophical ideas in uh, simple accessible terms for a population that had a far greater appetite than ever before. Uh, for hearing these sorts of things is an example of public engagement with science, technology and, uh, and other kind of related philosophical areas. The problem, of course, with the development of light industries and the decline of heavy industries is the decline of heavy industrial areas. Now, the Great Depression that begins in 1929 and ends in Britain roughly around 1934, 1935, is it's a regionalised Great Depression. It's not a Great Depression that affects the country uniformly. It's regionalised in areas where there are um, uh, pockets of heavy industry, particularly 
the staples of um, coal, iron, steel, cotton, and shipbuilding. Um, and it is these areas that struggle. And um, there is, um, you know, other than the Special Areas Act, um, very, very little that's actually done for them. Um, hence, you have these this kind of contrasting period during the Great Depression of um, pockets of deep deprivation and also in some areas the experience of rising living standards. New industries such as the kind of the chemical industries um, such as ICI for example um, were and also engineering industries would be pivotal to Britain's war effort. Um, the fact that the British economy was globalised, i.e. it had um, huge export markets, but also was a, an importer of food and other raw materials, uh, meant that Britain was intimately connected to the world economy. And some historians have argued that the British Empire itself is, uh, was one of the, kind of the key drivers of this thing that we call globalisation that has different kind of phases um, and there is some argument to, to, to suggest that that, that that is indeed valid. Um, so this global nature of the British economy, the development of science and industry, and changes in the work that British people did, meant that most British people uh, experienced a sense of things be being modernised or more modern, or they experienced waves of modernity throughout the uh... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 1930s. And in the field of technology, field of communications, um, this is particularly pronounced. Um, at the end of the First World War, and for the two decades that followed, uh, motor vehicles became more and more a feature of everyday life. In Julia Gardner's uh, book, The 1930s, uh, uh, An Intimate Portrait, 
she writes uh, about the, the various kind of um, uh, problems of uh, road transportation and road traffic uh, and the fact that uh, a liberalisation of road traffic led to horrific numbers of road deaths and it was only sort of uh, the Minister Leslie Horbalisha who introduced uh, new uh, driving regulations which suddenly uh, stopped uh, the, the carnage on the roads. Horse-drawn vehicles had all but disappeared from the roads uh, by the 1930s and car ownership was mainly the preserve of the better off um, and from 1930 onwards uh, passenger miles uh, travelled every year in cars and buses and motorbikes grew and they eclipsed railway travel so we became a country, I say we, people listening in Britain or British people, if you're not listening in Britain, um, became road users primarily during the 1930s. Um, the great uh, innovation of railway during the 1920s has been gradually elbowed out of the way, not completely, but increasingly so. At the end of the 30s, uh, Britain had the biggest car industry in Europe. Air travel, um, which was only for the very wealthy, um, uh, expanded during the 30s. Um, the British Empire became linked up through um, air power and through, through air travel. And um, air travel had distinctly colonial connotations. Um, it was advertised uh, as a way to see the empire um, and the empire had a far greater value as a kind of um, the, the beginnings of mass tourism um, emerged during the 1930s and the idea that people can go to places for the purposes of leisure uh, even if they are extremely wealthy, have to be extremely wealthy. Um, there were networks for, between Britain, Africa, Asia and Australia that were operated by Imperial Airways um, and there was uh, obviously the beginnings of airmail um, throughout the empire as well. Um, imperialists uh, had seen air power uh, as a way of keeping the empire connected and under control and believed that uh, the bomber would eventually replace the gunboat. And if you go back, well, maybe a dozen podcasts or so, there is... Um, a podcast I did on the British Empire in the 20s and 30s and the development of air policy that would eventually create um, the ideas behind mass bombing of Germany during the war. So during this um, transformation, this transport transformation, there's also the development of a media society. And mass media societies are really kind of integral to all our understandings of um, modernity. If you imagine a society that is linked um, temporally, so there are people who are a synchronous society, if you will. Somebody in London can know roughly the same things at the same times as somebody in Glasgow or Birmingham or uh, Belfast. Uh, and this is key to creating a, a unified experience, so a, a unified sense of being in the same nation uh, together. Um, the um, development of 
uh, mass communications seems to be central to um, the idea of modernity and the idea of kind of national identity in most uh, developed and, and the, um, uh, modern countries during the 20th century. Daniel Todman writes, The interwar period saw a booming national press start to overtake the circulation of local newspapers and the rise of the cheap paperback and the emergence of the Left Book Club and the Penguin Special, a location for serious information and political discussion as well as popular entertainment. Still more striking was the advance of film and the onwards march of radio. By the late 1930s, the UK had about 5,000 cinemas, now showing with sound, and for the very first time, some films in colour, as well as in black and white. Each week, a nation of 48 million inhabitants bought about 20 million cinema tickets. Newsreel programmes, shown alongside, or instead of main screenings, presented audiences with a mixture of big events, exotic oddities, matters of local interest, all with a familiar and non-controversial uh, commentary. So there's something really interesting there uh, in the fact that local newspapers became eclipsed by national newspapers. Um, perhaps this was a generational change of uh, older readers dying out and younger readers um, who are better educated and better informed focusing on national issues and becoming politically active in, in national issues, um, um, quite possibly. Um, but it, what it does indicate is that um, there was a transition away from uh, more parochial thought or more, more, a more parochial perspective during the 1930s towards a, a more national and perhaps even international uh, perspective. Um, in some ways, the um, experience of the First World War had possibly encouraged uh, British um, newspaper readers to focus on bigger issues than those which um, occurred in their local area um, and the uh, trauma of a conflict which touched all aspects of national life in a way that no war previously had done can't be ruled out as a significant contributory factor. Um, but also, the um, use of uh, cinema newsreels, the famous Pathé newsreels, and radio also penetrated um, homes in ways that local newspapers had never done with uh, knowledge and information of the outside world. Um, radio had been transformed during the 1920s from a kind of an eccentric hobbyist's uh, project into a, uh, a key aspect, not just of the information environment, but of um, the, cons the developing consumerism of Great Britain. Um, so they became, became a key part of the of consumer lifestyles. Um, by the 30s, there were um, a population of almost three quarters of British households had access to a wireless radio and during the Second World War. This was one of the key ways that families found out and listened to what was happening uh, around the world. British society was uh, connected and networked on the eve of the Second World War in a way that it had not been on the eve of the First World War. 
British people were able to access information in ways that they had not been able to access. And that is, was something that the British government understood very well. The development of the Ministry of Information was key to um, uh, winning the war on the home front, to ensuring the continuance of, uh, of civilian morale, to make sure that misinformation and disinformation was not spread either by accident or on purpose, uh, and to really harness and capture a mass audience uh, of listeners before anybody else did. If you listen to the previous podcast I did uh, about the Nazi cultural revolution during the 1930s, one thing that stands out there is that Hitler believed that unlike any other war, the First World War had been lost on the home front, and that morale now, civilian morale, and the will to carry on fighting and keep armies supplied with everything they needed, was the most significant consideration for uh, any, uh, any war. Uh, I'm not sure that the British government believed to quite that extent, but they certainly knew that um, keeping um, the population informed in particular ways and directed in particular ways using uh, state propaganda uh, and information campaigns was absolutely vital. The uh, mass media that emerged um, had managed to create uh, very contemporary ideas of celebrity and fame um, that began to percolate during the, uh, the 20s uh, and the 30s and began to, as previously said, kind of really ennoble um, the, um, the commentator, the, the, the educated expert um, who was able to explain new complicated scientific, social, political um, and philosophical ideas to an unknowing but um, eager to learn uh, general public. Um, the, the likes of J.B. Priestley, for example, the novelist um, and the playwright, who um, would speak with their audience via broadcasts uh, was a, a key example. Uh, another key figure who became a, uh, a popular uh, voice uh, of the left and also a, a popular figure in, in science was J.B.S. Haldane, uh, of whom we've mentioned previously and his ongoing feud with uh, Lysenko, Trofim Lysenko, uh, the fraudulent Russian uh, agronomist and supposed scientist. Um, the thing we'll move on to, to next is looking at the fragility of, of this society under the Great Depression and how gradually, bit by bit, um, America was slowly whittling away at Great Britain's uh, economic um, supremacy and Britain as a kind of like a hegemonic world power. Anyway, I hope you found this useful and interesting, and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. Thanks very much. All the best. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.